Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. everybody uh this is a, a fun one uh, a fun episode of the three questions um because i'm talking to a real newsman uh chris hayes from msnbc is has been good enough to do this podcast and he's got to go be a news guy in like a five newsman. minutes a newsman yeah a newsman a newsman <laughs> how are you i'm good andy how are you man I, i'm good i'm good um, is that, I mean, what do you, do you call yourself journalist? Do you call yourself? Yeah. TV yeah I host? say, you know, it's funny. I say when people ask me what I do, uh, I say I'm a reporter, which is, I sort of think the way I still think about myself. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I say I'm a reporter uh, or a journalist. Um, that's how I, I still think of myself. I still do a lot of, you know, I still spend a lot of time like texting and talking to sources and, um, trying to, you know, I think the thing that I loved that I fell in love with about reporting right out of college was, it seemed like this incredible hustle where you could learn professionally and people would pay you to learn as opposed to going to grad school, which was paying to learn. Yeah. I was yeah. like, Oh wait, there's a way to <laughs> like, rather than pay to learn, what if people paid me to learn? Right. And I feel like I've somehow managed to basically keep that going to get paid to learn. Oh yeah. I mean, it's the same thing in like the performing that I do it. it take all the classes you want, but until you're actually, on a stage in front of a dispassionate drunks, you you don't know what you're doing. You know, yeah, you're, totally. you're the real, you're the rubber is not meeting the road. Um, but you were born into a, a, a journalisty family, right? Your dad's a, a reporter. Yeah. No, or my dad's, my, my dad's, um, I mean, I was born into a very political family, but my dad, so my dad was, um, a Jesuit seminarian. Um, he was, he, so on his way to being a priest. Yes, in fact, had gone – so back in the day, they don't do this as much anymore, but he'd gone to a uh, – um, uh, he'd gone to a Jesuit high school, St. Ignatius, uh, in the north shore of Chicago. He was from the city of Chicago, and then he had immediately out of high school, like the age of 18, went and entered the seminary and sort of moved around because the Jesuits would sort of move their cohorts around, and he was – he was in Detroit. He was in Xavier. He was in Peru. And then he ended seems, up. In- seems shady, to be honest, <laughs> yeah, exactly. moving people around like that. <laughs> yeah, maybe they were up to something I didn't realize. But um, <laughs> but he ended up in the Bronx at Fordham. And his sort of small group of Jesuits got an apartment in uh, an apartment building in the kind of South Bronx near Fordham that happened to be the apartment building that my mother had grown up in and was living in mm-hmm. um, while going to um, leaving college in the Bronx. And so they met as neighbors um, and and then eventually um, fell in love. He left the seminary. Uh, my mom became a teacher and my dad became a community organizer. And he'd already, um, he'd already started doing this kind of community organizing as a Jesuit. So it was a sort of natural transition, but they stayed right. in the Bronx. My mom taught in the Bronx and he did community organizing in the Bronx. And, uh, and your mom's Italian, right? Because that explains your crazy middle name. I know. People are always so weirdly surprised by my middle name, but it's it's Lofredo, which is just my mom's maiden name. Yeah, um, yeah. She's Italian. She grew So she grew up right by a part of um, the Bronx. It's called Arthur Avenue, which is the like yeah. little little Italy of the Bronx right. near Fordham and also. That's, yeah, where all the good restaurants are. I mean, it's amazing. It's really um, an incredible place. I grew up going almost every weekend. My grandfather actually... Uh, had a mozzarella shop, like a deli, where he made oh, wow. mozzarella uh, for years. That was what he did when my mom was growing up uh, in in Arthur Avenue. So, um, yeah, so that's that's I'm Italian on that part of the family. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, it was obviously a politically engaged house, and your mom too, and you know, and I would I take it sort of 
liberal with a but with a with a theological base. Yeah, right. It was it yeah. was interesting. It was in a really interesting milieu because it was a very like yes, it was very news and politics aware household. We subscribed to a bunch of magazines. We watched the news. We talked about the news. My mom's family had this tradition of like this very Italian tradition of like arguing politics at the dinner table. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was that part of it, and then my you know my dad's community justice work, and then there was this kind of my my parents had this circle of friends who were all basically people doing kind of social justice oriented work in the Bronx. Mm-hmm. Um, and largely kind of Catholic inflected, I would say. Um, yeah. And it was also this period of time in which, you know, we we were living in this very working class neighborhood in the Bronx. But, you know, this was the 1980s, late 70s. I was born in 79. Um, you know, the, the Bronx was in very, very dire straits. Um, yeah. And, and under pretty rough conditions. Um, and these were a lot of people very committed to kind of fighting for the neighborhoods there. Yeah. And was I mean, would you say that the neighborhood that you grew up in was could would you describe it as rough? No, I wouldn't describe it as rough actually. Um it was a it was a it was a fairly no, it felt you know, it it felt pretty safe to me growing up. Um mm-hmm. it was a working class outer borough neighborhood. It had been um it had been kind of this it, it had been this very specific kind of like New York City Bronx Irish Catholic, BIC, they call mm-hmm. them. Um, you know, over time, white flight and things like that, there were fewer and fewer of them. It was a much more yeah. know, non-white neighborhood. Um, um, so it was it was diverse racially. It was pretty working class, but not, you know, there are areas of the Bronx that had been really burned out uh, right. by underinvestment, by predatory arson, basically by landlords. I mean, the whole Bronx is burning was part of what they were organizing against. And this was not that, but it was not, you know, it was not affluent. I mean, we would, yeah. you know, we would pick up my friend at the housing projects to like commute together to work. Like it was, yeah, you know, yeah, I mean, to yeah. school. So it was, yeah, it was, but it felt stable. It didn't feel, in fact, you know, the funny thing I wrote in my second book, I wrote about this. The times when I felt much less safe in New York city as a kid was when I was 12 or 13. I started going down to Manhattan, particularly the Upper East Side mm-hmm. um, to go to this magnet school. And that, and that, that school was like on the border of East Harlem at a time when, when, you know, crime was very high in the city and we just got, <laughs> we got jacked all the time. Oh, really? <laughs> just, yeah. Just con, I mean, you know, it was just a constant, you know, run your loot, run your baseball cap. I'm yeah, going to yeah. take your jacket kind of thing. Yeah, um, yeah. So, yeah, but I didn't, as a kid in the Bronx, I didn't feel that way. We, we had a pretty, um, it was a, such a strange and distinct world. I don't think I appreciated it at the time, but it was just this really interesting intersection of people from all different backgrounds. I mean, Dominican, Puerto Rican, Filipino, yeah, Egyptian, Pakistani, um, Caribbean islands, African-American, multiple generations in the Bronx, sort of white ethnic. Um, you know, people were, people's parents like drove buses, ran delis, worked as bank tellers. Um, you know, just this very kind of outer borough cross-section melting pot New York yeah, world. Yeah. That Well, and I mean, I imagine that having that as your childhood base, that really informs your worldview at, a, at a, you know, at an early age. It's kind of, I think it'd be hard to come out of that being xenophobic, you know, or, or being, you know, close-minded about, about different types of people. I, I think it was so important and so formative for both my brother and I. I mean, I think about a few experiences. I mean, one, I, I remember the experience of like going into people's, these, no one had a, well, that's not true. A few pe- kids actually had small, kind of small houses, but almost yeah. everyone lived in apartment buildings. And that's that, that thing where you walk into an apartment building where you smell the regional cooking of, mm-hmm. of the building. Yeah. And just like that feeling of like curry or oxtail or, right, um, right. you know, Korean food, whatever it was. And, you know, noticing that, but then also like, you know, and you're a kid too. So like, you know, you get that like sort of weird picky culinary thing. Oh, sure. Sure. You know, that's gross. That smell this, some, this, this foreign thing, but then also like quickly appreciating that that's just the way different, like that's the way different apartments smell and that mine smells different and that one smells different yeah. and people cook different things. And I eat different things when I go to this kid's house and this kid's house and his auntie makes this thing. And, and, 
so so there was that and then there was also you know i think a th another thing that was really that happened a fair amount in my upbringing and it was a fairly like it was very diverse my elementary school but i well, i would find myself in fairly often in situations where like i was basically the only white kid yeah that would happen at like certain summer camps or like some free my mom would find like a free program and like there's like free tennis lessons in like the South Bronx tennis courts. Uh -huh. <laughs> it's like, uh -huh. you know, and I, and you know, I, I just, I remember that experience really well. And I remember it being like a little discomforting or alienating, mm -hmm. um, but also it was really, I think good for me. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, it's not like it made me like, it's not like I have some superior enlightenment or something. I just think that like, it's just, I guess it's, I think it's not an experience that a lot of white people have. I think that, yeah. I think that a lot of people of color will find themselves in life quite often yes. <laughs> in spaces in which they are the only one in the room. Yes. Yes. And, and the subjective experience of that is pretty intense. And obviously yep. it's nowhere near as intense when it's reversed because of, you know, the way that racial hierarchy works, but just the subjective experience of noticing your own otherness um, yep. in a space in which you're not the norm and you're, is I just, I think it's a really good, important experience. And I think it's yeah. one that I wish more people had. And I wish, you know, I mean, because I've been the only white person in, in a room full of black people, maybe three times in my life. And yeah. I'm 54 years old. Right. And that's, you know. Right. No, that's, just, that's the way, I mean, American life doesn't work to, to create, yeah. you know, those situations. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I wish, I wish I had more of that. And I guess I could. You know, I wish I had had more opportunities like that to get used to that more because I think it's important to have that perspective, like you said, you know, which is very, very Catholic, by the way, you know, the the golden rule stuff, which, by the way, you just have one brother. I do, yeah. For some How Catholic can these people be if they've well, only got two kids? They're not Catholic. They're actually, right. there's a, a real, it's a real, uh, a real Vatican II uh, kind of <laughs> Catholicism. This is the, not, The yeah. pick and choose Catholicism. Yeah, yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, no, yeah, I just think, because I grew up, uh, you know, the county that I grew up in, when a black family moved there, it was in a different town, but we knew that a black family moved yeah, into our yeah. county. It was just, Jesus. you know. That's just like, and it's not that far. We're an hour from Chicago, you know, right. it's not that far at all. It just, it out. But that it just whole region, of, I mean, I got to say like that entire region, I moved, my wife's from Chicago and I moved to Chicago after college and, and, you know, New York has its own problems and I, and there is a ton of segregation and, you know, racial disparity in the city, um, you know, no matter what anyone says. But the level of racial segregation in Chicago really blew me away. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. I was just like wait, y'all have different parts of the city that you yes. go like, like. And they're and they're like bisected by like. Enormous highways. Highways that, yes. that were built. Yes. And that there to are. keep are, people. Yeah. And there are rumored to, you can flood. Like that was always a, a rumor. The, those can be flooded in case of a race war. Wow. That was one I, that I heard, like, which, I mean, of course, they're not going to be flooded. Right. and But still, everybody, but no, was, it was like everybody knew. You know, that that's like, well, and that was the, and I will say that like, again, it's very hard. I think it's very hard in American life for a lot of reasons having to do with both uh, sort of the legacy and continued practice of white supremacy and um, structural racism and racial heart care and all those things, all these sort of institutional factors. And then the policies that produce them, like creating sustainable and almost, I would say, like natural, kind of multiracial spaces. Yeah, um, it's hard. It's hard to engineer because you're yeah. you're working against the grain. And I just happened to look out into a situation in which that was the kind of just where that was the what I, the water I swam in as a child. Yeah, you know? yeah. yeah, was just difference. Lots of difference. Lots of people from lots of different places. Yeah, and I just think it was it was good for me. And um, and I wish, you know, we're I wish there were there were more. <laughs> I wish we, we one of our challenges, I think, in America in this period is to figure out how to engineer that more. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah, because um, it, it's hard to other people when you're sitting next to them. You know. Yeah, and like the other thing about it too is that you know um, Suketa Meta Suketu Meta, who's this great um, uh, writer 
um, you know, wrote a book about sort of his family's journey. He immigrated from from India, and then he would later go on and write an incredible book about Mumbai. And his book, you know, he he writes about his his building in Queens, which was a very similar thing, right? Like, you know, Russian, Pakistani, Jamaican, like everyone. He's like people were definitely like incredibly bigoted to each other. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. He's like that doesn't. It's not like that goes away. Like, right. like for, right, you know, right. People had tons of stereotypes. People like yeah. it wasn't. And it's not like you know, there's some magical fairy dust you sprinkle on human beings, mm-hmm. and and like. It's not like those differences went unnoted, and it's not like kids didn't say messed up stuff. Yeah, <laughs> about and it's not know. like people weren't known as like Johnny the Greek. You mm-hmm. know, <laughs> you know what I mean. Here right. comes Bill the Swede. You know, I remember with his- some dude saying. I remember a, it was it was it was like a Puerto Rican friend of mine saying something about a Dominican kid that was like so racist. racist. <laughs> yes, <laughs> just like yes. my like, heart went in my throat. But it's like, but. And not to not to say like any of that's okay because it's not and kids should not do that and and adults shouldn't do that. But the proximity of the friction of the other relationships that are happening alongside that is very different mm-hmm. than than that stuff happening from afar or, right, or online right. or representations. Right. You know, than sitting in Kansas and thinking you know what a Dominican person is. That's like. right, and I think yeah. again because, and I just don't want that. It's important, I think, not to idealize. Like so Meta's book has a great riff on this because he's like very real about it. Yeah, um, but but I do think that like yeah, living with difference, living alongside difference, and and being comfortable with it, and and learning to kind of celebrate and when not a celebrate accommodate you know mm-hmm. um that that's really it's a really important life skill and yeah and it's uh like you know you say it would be nice it'd be i say more than be nice it's absolutely necessary like we gotta we gotta start doing that you know and like we gotta start doing it yesterday it's literally it's the central story of american politics at this moment yeah i mean it's yeah, the yeah. central story of american politics at this yep. moment is a, a kind of divide in the country between people who are broadly comfortable with that and people who absolutely reject it. And the people who were in that first coalition, broadly comfortable, these people are not like some, like, they're not like enlightened. A lot of them, yeah. <laughs> they're yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Some no, of them have like totally fairly reactionary politics. It's like, it's not, you know, and then when you try to integrate their schools, they show up the school board meeting and lose their mind. So it's like, yeah, yeah. I don't want to, you know, I'm not throwing a halo on anyone, but in a broad aggregate sense, the the basic accommodation to that in the general aggregate sense of we're going to be a country of difference and and yeah. multiracial democracy or we're going to be a country in which we're losing our country like that's the central dividing line right right now when when you were uh, growing up I mean you grew up in this kind of you know very activated family uh, did you always have in mind that you would be doing something with you know politics current events you know civic issues I think. I, I don't know when I first started to say, I mean, I think, you know, when I was seven or eight, I wanted to be a professional basketball player. Sure, of course, either, but of course. Um, I think, yeah, I think I started to feel that way um, early, 12, 13. You know, I remember like reading my dad's New York Review of Books. Yeah. Um, That's, and, man, what a jock. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I remember that and I remember thinking like, that's kind of what I want to be. I want to be the kind of person who either is writing a review of the book or who has written a book that is being reviewed and then has a caricature drawn of them (laughs) (laughs) by David Levine. Yeah, yeah, Um, yeah. So I had that. And then the other thing that happened, I would say in, in college is I started doing theater and that really like blew my mind and altered my aspirations. I think, you know, for a lot of my teenage years i really wanted to be an actor oh wow um, or a, an actor or a director or a playwright or some combination of them and that that aspiration continued through college and even after college um, wow i think if if things had shaken out differently that might have been what i ended up doing um and of course you had your famous classmates and you didn't you direct lin-manuel miranda and his first i mean this a lot has been made of this 
Yeah, yeah. I directed Lynn and I. Lynn and I met when he was twelve and I was thirteen. He was in seventh grade. I was in eighth grade. We were cast together in a student written play called Swing Line Four Fifty Seven, at which a, a dinner party where an unruly guest accidentally th- chucks a stapler out the window, which kills someone on the sidewalk below. And um, <laughs> that's pretty good for a. Oh I yeah, mean, this guy as, Rob Sosin. Yeah, he wow. was written by Rob Sosin, and Rob Sosin still works as a writer today and was like a brilliant playwright at the wow. age of seventeen. Yeah, yeah. Um, he wrote he wrote a book he wrote a play also called neon girly city i still remember it to this day that centers on two like 19 year olds in vegas uh hiring a sex worker and being with her on the night that reagan was elected uh in 1980 like watching the returns come in which was also just like incredibly profound and yeah, good yeah, yeah. again this is a 17 year old playlight right but, um, i know and so, yeah, such, so such disparate things to glob together, you know? Yeah. Like, so, so, um, so Lynn and I were in this play together and we, we formed this very tight bond because we both would commute on this express bus uptown. He would get off at the stop in Inwood at 207th and I go up to the Bronx. Um, and so then we just became extremely close and, yeah. and we worked on a million things together. And then by senior year, he wrote his first musical, which I directed. Um, so yeah, we, we were, um, we were super close, but there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of amazing, there are a lot of amazing people at that school and a lot of amazing, you know, theater that we were able to make. I mean, a lot of it terrible. I mean, I'm sure if I went back and saw yeah, it, now, yeah. I would absolutely think it was. But still you're doing it. I mean, it's terrible. That, that was the most, that was the most important thing. It sounds thing. We like doing fertile, it. like just like, oh my God, this place to be was surrounded so, by so many creative people and people was, that continue it, to this day. You know, it was so creatively fertile. I think one of the things, I mean, it was an, an amazing place in many ways I've written about it in both my books because it was so formative for me. But, um, you know, one of the things I think that made it really incredible was you've got this school, it's on 94th and Park in the Upper East Side. And you've got a school that's a five borough schools. People come from all five boroughs. They test across the city. So for a whole bunch of kids, it's like home is a far way away. Mm -hmm. So there's just this like, people are just hanging out around the school afterwards, like making theater or going to the newspaper. (laughs) Cause you're not, no one's going to run home. It's like an hour and 15 back to, you know, Woodside or whatever. Right. Um, And that, I think, was part of the the incredible creative fertile atmosphere. Like, here we are in the city. It's six o'clock at night. (laughs) We're like, we're in the theater. We've been here for hours, you know. And we're a bunch of kids left to our own devices. Very much so. It was unbelievably laissez-faire. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think arguably too much because like I think a, a malpractice of some kind. I th- Well, no, I think what ended up happening was that there's a little bit of sink or swim uh-huh. where it was a I, very, I see what you mean. It was a difficult and competitive environment. And I think cur- certain kids, and I think particularly kids that are coming from um, poorer neighborhoods and, yeah. and more, and more difficult circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. Um, were not given the support that they needed to thrive yeah, yeah. there because it yeah. was just kind of like, all right, and I think that, you know, in retrospect, that's like, um, that was a real failure. Uh, yeah, but, yeah. but for those of us who did, you know, swim, uh, it, it was magical. Uh, yeah. You know, we were like little adults. I mean, we were, you know, I thought I was, I was 14 and like, I could just go anywhere in the city. I could walk across the park. I could take the subway to my friend's house. I could take the crosstown bus. I could hang a light and put a Lico and focus it and, and I could, figure out a soundboard and but you know like, it was just you know yeah, i, I yeah, felt yeah. like king of the world I, yeah. <laughs> like there's every we could do anything yeah yeah want to make mom's day get to your nordstrom rack now and score amazing deals for mother's day which is sunday may 12th find tons of gifts from only 30 dollars at nordstrom rack fragrance jewelry luxury bags activewear beauty and more Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. 
Find out more at tmobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at tmobile.com. Can't you tell my loves are growing? And so, it's interesting to me that then theater... When you say that theater changed your worldview, did that just kind of give you the notion that broadcast journalism would be in your future? I mean, because never in a million bazillion years. I thought, oh, really? Never, never. So never. when when you decided to start being reported, did you put aside the the desire to? Yeah, basically oh, okay. that's what happened. Yeah, so it was I I got out of college um, and moved to Chicago with my then partner, now wife Kate. Um, you know, she and I started dating our freshman year. We've been together ever since. So. Um, that's you know, nice. 23 years or something like that. Um, bless you both. Yeah, it is nice. It's really, it's been an incredible, uh, blessing in my life and, um, very special. Um, it's, it's very, I think it's a very unique thing to form your life with someone. You know, I mean, we're, when I look back, it's like, we were, we were kind of kids when we met yes, each other. Yes. Um, and we've kind of co-formed each other, um, in lots of really beautiful ways and like grown together. Um, so we moved to Chicago and I was sort of simultaneously pursuing these two tracks. I was freelancing as a journalist, trying to teach myself how to be a reporter. Yeah. And then I was working with a theater company where I was like trying to hustle and, you know, direct, assistant direct, you know, read mm-hmm. scripts. Um, and not basically- so mu- Not so much an actor? Did you- I was less interested. In, I, you know, I, I hit a certain point where in college I acted and I was around these- profoundly talented yeah performers yeah john krasinski was a friend of mine in college oh wow um oh that's right he went to brown yeah went to brown. i knew that yeah in fact i i cast him in something that was sort of um i think it was really intense and wonderful experience we did a adaptation of david foster wallace's brief interviews with hideous men which i mm-hmm. had gotten obsessed with and then i turned to a, a show of monologues and then later when we left college john bought the rights to it and actually made a movie out of it Oh wow! Um, that grew out of that experience that we had working on it together, and yeah, so. Yeah. But I, I, I found myself. I liked acting a lot, and I loved the rush of being on stage, um, obviously. But um, <laughs> I just felt like I was like fine at it, but not amazing at it. Yeah, and I felt like, and it's crowded out there, and there's people who yeah. are amazing at this. Yeah, who are like amazing and beautiful and can sing, and like I'm like fine, I'm fine, but it's just not. Right. So I, I wanted to focus more on writing writing plays and directing and maybe i think my dream would be to like be an artistic director mm-hmm. um you know like oscar eustace who's uh runs the public and it taught at brown and i was basically working these twin tracks and what ended up happening was that i just started being being able to make a living writing sooner yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> to the point where it was like oh okay well this is this is now segueing into like a real perfect like i can be a writer yeah and do children come along at any point in here to sort of like force your hand one way or the other? No, we, we you know, we, I wrote for a while and then we moved to Washington, D.C. because Kate uh, got a clerkship for John Paul Stevens on the Supreme mm-hmm. Court. And we we still did not have children. Then she worked in the Obama White House. Um, and then by that point, you know, she was at that point, she was a lawyer. She was an established lawyer. She worked in the White House. I had um, started writing for the nation, the Washington Bureau of the nation, and then started mm-hmm. appearing on MSNBC as just like a common talking head, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so we didn't, we didn't, she didn't get pregnant with her first child since, uh, until we were like 32, 2011, when she was finishing up the Obama. Oh, House. okay. Okay. Yeah. So we had a good, you know, we had 10 years basically of, we had 10, a, a solid decade of being together, 20 year olds mm-hmm. together, both kind of hustling yeah with without that added responsibility yeah my my ex-wife and i were married for seven years before we had our first child and we always referred to the time before our children as when we were single yeah. meaning that like <laughs> when we as a couple right we're right. just our you know our own unit and there well, wasn't I, I sometimes think about like you know sometimes you get these flashbacks to those days like a saturday morning you know, when you're 26 and like you yeah. wake up with your partner at like 11 and they're like, oh, should yeah. we go get some bagels? And yeah, oh, so-and-so's hanging out at whatever for brunt, like <laughs> just right. yep. knocking around. Yeah. Yeah. Like having to figure out what you're going to do with your yeah, day as we, opposed to doing? having, having these little creatures that say like, here's yeah. what we're doing. Yes. <laughs> I have an agenda. Now, why, uh, 
did you ever consider using your sort of civic mindedness, your, your, you know, interest in, in what's happening and policy into onto a, you know, like actually sort of being involved in making policy or kind of being yeah. you yes. know, more on the side of what your wife was doing? Well, I think I, I used to think about running for office a fair amount. Uh-huh. Um, so I did think about that. And I thought, I used to think, well, running for office would be kind of a natural merging of these different interests, you know, like the, you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty natural extrovert. Um, mm-hmm. I, I like talking. Yeah. Uh, and, and you're good at it. I mean, I, you know, I, I was a friend of, of, I was just with friends of mine from high school, some of my oldest friends and someone was joking me. He's like, and you figure out a way to talk for a living. <laughs> it's like <Yeah>. an amazing <laughs> thing. <laughs> yeah. just, I'm like, that's true. Yeah, talk yeah, for yeah, a living. Yeah. <laughs> but you actually, see, I do the same thing, but I don't have to know anything. you got to actually <laughs> know shit. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think, yeah, I think that I I thought for a while about running for office. Um, but then I think partly I didn't, I didn't know the right, Sort of, I, I didn't go to law school. I thought about it for a little bit, and then Kate went. It felt a little weird to also go. Like you know, we were sort of doing, yeah, different things, and she was like incredible at it and loved it immediately. And um, so I thought about doing that, and I, I, I I'm never quite. I, there's some some part of it always some seems attractive to me, mm-hmm. um, but that was as far as it went. I didn't I didn't really think about. I really liked. <laughs> I think I, I, what ended up happening is that I, I started getting further and further along as a writer. Yeah. And I had this very rare life where I didn't have anyone really telling me what to do. Oh, wow. Like I had editors and I had people, I had to produce a work product, mm-hmm. but no one told me how to structure my day. I didn't really like clock in. Wow. I wasn't, I wasn't going to meetings. Yeah. And I just like really loved that freedom. Like I yeah. was just, kind of free and I had to work a lot. I worked my butt off, but I was just producing my work product every day. Yeah. And the thought of like going into some organization to be an intern in the policy shop of the mayor or something. Yeah. It just felt like I would be giving up too much freedom to do it. And so I just stayed with what I was doing because I don't know. I was like, it felt when I started making a salary as a writer, a staff writer, it just felt like I'd hit the jackpot. It's like, yeah, I call people up or I show up and I ask them what's going on. Then I take notes. Then I go and I kind of try to figure it out and write it up. And then I publish it under my byline. There's a direct deposit check that shows up every two weeks. (laughs) And like, that's my life and my job. Like this is, yeah, yeah. This is as good as it gets. Why would I do something else? Yeah. That's, it's a minimal amount of bullshit, which is a very, very serious concern. Hugely. I mean, I, I, some people's careers are 80% bullshit. I mean, dude, I've been in meetings. I mean, I, even now today, like, you know, to this day, it's like, I have a very crystal clear work product. Mm -hmm. Like everyone knows what my work product is every day. And I've always loved that. I've loved that about, I love that about writing. Like the article publishes it or it doesn't like you, like my, my work product is transparent. Yeah. And it's the same thing now. You yeah. like, you could think it's bad or it's good or somewhere in between. Yeah, but you can't ask like, what exactly did you do today? <laughs> yeah, and or and yeah, right. And I mean, and what's what else is what else is going on behind the scenes? It's like, no, this is it. This is the product. Yeah, I didn't know? have like ninety meetings where we didn't decide anything. Yeah, like I mean, that's one of the things. You know, my current job is incredibly, you know, demanding and punishing in many ways. Although, again. Let's be clear. I'm not like, you know, yeah. I'm not a hospice nurse and I'm not mining yeah. coal. You're not I'm, a longshoreman. Yeah. Yes, I am unbelievably privileged to do what I do. Um, but, you know, it has its own, you know, it, it's a pretty punishing schedule to produce every day and to start yeah. from zero and to make an hour long show every day. Everybody's day is the same, you know, the same length. Yeah. And it becomes your life and it becomes your day. And unless you're some kind of like ridiculous performative Pollyanna, you start to bitch about stuff because right, they're, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, we're dissatisfaction all, yeah. is an engine, you know? Yeah. So it's, to me, it's, um, but the one thing I like about it is there's still a, a real minimum. I'm 42. I made it to 42, 20 years, basically in the working world. Mm-hmm. And like, I'm not having a lot of meetings where we just like 
someone shows a deck and then we talk around each other and we don't make any decisions because like there's a show we got to make a show like every meeting produces decisions those decisions are then executed and then every day no matter how anyone's feeling or what has gone on at 8 p.m on the dot a green light comes up on the camera and beams us out to millions of homes across the country live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it also, it also, you can't be precious about it. No, you yeah. cannot. You can't, and you can't miss a deadline and you can't rewrite something 40 times and you can't yeah. say, ugh, this isn't good enough. Like, right. y- you got to ship the product. Yeah. And also, I imagine that that sort of minimizes competition among colleagues too, I would think too, that where it's not like, or or does it? Yeah, I mean, I don't. Competition doesn't even enter into the picture in some ways because I yeah. find the, I, I find the effort to make the thing so totalizing. Yeah, yeah. Like there's there's very little space. Yeah, you know, to be even aware of what well, people going will on. say yeah. sometimes is like, oh, like what do you and you know what what do you and Lawrence talk about? Are you and it's like we just spend every second from the time we wake up like making a show every. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, like, yeah. There's not a lot of water cooler. I mean, uh-huh. even before COVID, like it's not a lot of like futzing around and like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you're just, you get up, you start reading the news and you just walk through the process of the meetings to make yeah, the show yeah. that night. Yeah. And that, and that, well, and also that kind of autonomy and sort of direct line between your efforts and its result, like, holy shit, are you absolutely wrong for politics now? You know what yeah, I mean? I mean, I think, yes, like, I think that's right. I think it's probably spoiled me for that. <laughs> yeah. Cause I actually, my younger brother, my younger brother, uh, is a school teacher in Illinois and he ran for Congress after, cause he took a group of students to see what was going to be Hillary Clinton's inauguration. And then, <sighs> the, you know, they had to see Trump's inauguration and he said like, is, you know, they were sophomores in high school, I think just kids crying because yeah. of the vibe Yep. And then he said, then the, the 180, the next day of, of the, the women's March, uh, or the, you know, the, yep. uh, he said that it just inspired him and he ran for office actually in that's Lauren, awesome. Un- Lauren Underwood's district. She, oh, that's she right. Went, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I just, just a little glimpse into that. And I had a hunch that this is the way it is, but all you do is ask for money. Yeah. That's, like when you think like somebody, that's what kills me about people that the chicanery that goes on to keep people in office in a, you know, a, a congressional seat in Indiana or something is they, their life is asking for money. They There's dial for like, dollars. It's yeah. Really, when's the, when's the fun happen? Yeah. And you also, yeah, you have to get so disciplined about that and you have to, um, at some part of you has to, it, it, it's really my, I did a podcast with my brother about this actually. Cause he's a campaign, you know, he's a political yeah, he's organizer, a, yeah. campaign manager. And I, one of my, I have a podcast called Why Is This Happening? And one of them, I just interviewed him about like, okay, like, what's it like to run for office? Like, walk me through the steps. Like, I, we, yeah, you yeah. Know, day one, <laughs> like, what do we do? Like, he just, it's the whole hour is just him just being like, well, first you get the signatures. And then, and he talks about that, you know, the benchmarks, the lists, how you get the list and the, and the, and the crazy psychological cat and mouse back and forth game between the finance director and the candidate who never wants to do it and yeah. has to be like induced and, and, and hectored and chased around and like yeah it's like you you can get some dinner if you do two hours of call time or like we'll yeah, let you yeah. do something fun like and the whole thing is just a real real bummer yeah uh yeah no it does not sound fun at all and just because i'm a political loudmouth on twitter people are like you should run for office and i'm like no fucking way <laughs> It's like make my life uh, an, a, a one long PTA meeting. No, yeah. thank you. You know, life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places. Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com network today. 
Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Can't you tell my loves are growing? Well, how, now, how do you transition from writer to, to on-camera personality? What what? Who's the first one that's like, son, you got to get on TV. Well, I got on, you know, we had this great PR person at the nation named Ben Wasquita, who still does PR. And, and, and he was, you know, doing what PR people at print magazines do was try to hustle you on the TV. I went on to C-SPAN Washington journal, um, to talk about an article I wrote, uh, like on a Sunday morning at like, you know, 8am with the call-in show. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll never forget. Someone called in. Someone called in apropos of literally nothing in the article to suggest that maybe the solution to our garbage problem was to throw the garbage in volcanoes. <laughs> yes, and Baba Booey to you too. <laughs> I was sir. just like, yeah, Oof, um, that's that's pretty far outside my area of expertise. Um, but um, actually, that clip is still on YouTube. It's that's honestly, that's I mean, it's not far off from from you know. Shooting a nuclear missile at a hurricane. Exactly. No, that was the first. I think I told that story literally to my staff the day that that story came out. Um, And then from there, I think some producers at MSNBC saw that clip and then invited me to be on the. uh, I was on Oberman. In fact, the first time I was on Oberman was when the first night that Rachel Maddow hosted, guest hosted for Oberman. And then, you know, I think basically what happened is. the thing I would say, I would be curious what you think about this since this is what you do for a living too. Like, um, there's a few different ways to think about like the ability to talk on television. So basically the way I think about it is some people are real naturals at it. Yeah. Like some people we have on and I'm like, well, and I think I was, I was a natural at it. Like I, I just, I, I talk a lot. I like to talk. I was mm-hmm. natural at it. The second thing you, I'll say is like, basically. You also, you also, if I may say, you talk in a very writerly way huh that's interesting you do you talk in a very writerly way and and in like a much more sort of intricately constructed sentences than most people exchange ideas with oh well i appreciate that i never thought of it quite in those terms but i think that i think that there's a certain uh fluidity that that was that was natural to me yeah and so i think they you know i i have this experience too we'll try someone out and sometimes it's like they were fine. And sometimes yeah. I was like, oof, that was terrible. And sometimes right, like, right. whoa, book that person again. So I yeah. think that was part of it. The second thing I would say is basically anyone can get good at it. <laughs> like yeah. it is not neurosurgery. And with enough yeah. practice, you know, and you see this sometimes with athletes who are signed to be TV commentators because of their who they are. Mm-hmm. And in the beginning, it's like, oh my God. Because yeah. they're just like don't have a natural affinity. But you know what? A year later, they're perfectly good. They're fine. Yep. And the reason is basically, you know, aside from the question of like, you know, human disability or whatever, um, but anyone can talk like, yeah, anyone can communicate. We all do uh, yeah. in different ways. So, and then there's like the third step, which is like mastery. Yeah. And there's just a really interesting learning curve. It's, it's This is true for teleprompter too, where, you know. Some people are good at it naturally. Some people are struggle with it naturally. Anyone can get pretty good, and then being masterful at it is extremely hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. And I think I think the master the masterful uh, level is a you can do it or you can't. Like you either got it in you or you can't. I think no, I totally agree. That's what yeah, I mean. Yeah. Like that last twenty percent. Yeah, like that that the, the, you could get anyone to the eighty percent. That's but, ex- yeah. Same but the last the last twenty percent, I think there's some combination of um, discipline technique and then just like natural talent yeah. that, that comes together. It's like the difference between actors and movie stars. Like there are just movie yep. stars that just, and when you meet them, it's just like, Oh yeah, that's person that has is magnetic. Like, is, yeah. just has magnets yeah. that draw your eyes yes. to them. And they're just, you know, you want to see him just talk and move around. Well, I think this is true of you and Conan. And I think it's true of, it's definitely, tr- you know, it's true of, um, I think it's true of, you know, a bunch of people, but, but, the the hardest thing to be, to me, the hardest thing about television, the the, the master of this, the, the the two people I think about all the time who are kind of like at the top of this are are Oprah and Letterman, particularly mm-hmm. late stage Letterman and 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 Oprah now, which is like your body is processing adrenaline and fight or flight stuff in all kinds of ways. Yeah, that you 
can consciously control a little bit by focusing on breath, but is largely subconscious. Yeah. And people that achieve a certain level of mastery, and this is true of you and Conan too, like get to a level where all of that chemical stuff basically isn't happening. Yeah. And your breath and your 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 sympathetic nervous system <laughs> is yeah. functioning as if you were talking to a person. Yeah. And that stuff is deep below your conscious mind. Mm -hmm. And it makes a huge difference when you're listening to a person. You may not be able to sort of consciously realize the difference between a person who's operating at that level but who, or who's not. Yeah. But when you're in the presence, particularly in broadcast, of someone like that, Martha Stewart's another example. Yeah. Where it's just like, holy crap. Like, yeah. you're just <laughs> like, and, and getting to that level is extremely difficult. Yeah. Uh, just a, as a quick anecdote, I was a guest on a uh, short-lived Will Arnett uh, sitcom in which Margot Martindale played his mother. And at the it's very common on a, on a multi-camera sitcom that all the cast gets into the makeup room as usually the star is getting made up mm -hmm. and you do a run, a quick, a run through. Mm -hmm. Or just and and everybody just does a top speed level of all the recited lines. Margot Martindale was sitting on a chair and saying her lines at triple speed. I it was still was like you just felt Killing. like yeah, just everything <laughs> she said was like I I didn't even like I forgot my lines because I was yeah. just watching her. Yeah. Do and it's yeah. a fucking sitcom. It's not yeah. you yeah. know. It's just the, the the those people are incredible. Now, I, I do want to ask because you went from being, you know, socially aware young guy in a, in a very socially aware family, in a, in a diverse background, writer, start getting on TV. Now you have a TV show. I do. And you got to get ratings and you got to, you know, there is an aspect of your show that's show business because it's, sure, it's, it's on sure television. True. Yeah. It's, it's funny. And you how do you, that. how do you handle that? Like, well, it's a great question. The, the answer, well, the answer is that when my, I first had a morning weekend show that was very successful, mm -hmm. that was successful, I think partly because it was massively format breaking, but also there was no ratings competition really at the time. So it, it was able to flourish. Then I went to, to primetime April 1st, 2013. And basically the show immediately tanked mm -hmm. ratings wise. And it absolutely destroyed my psyche. Yeah. Um, it, it, was, it was the most difficult psychological period of my life, which There's again- Nothing like having a country reject you. Yeah. I mean, you know? again, world's smallest violin, right? But- Right, but, right. But my, and you know what? You know what I would, I, this is honest to God. I listened. One of the key things that got me through that period was- Conan's Marin interviews. Oh, wow. Because he talks about that experience. Yeah. In them. And I just found it so comforting and also relatable mm -hmm. um, of just that feeling of like, yeah, I'm being rejected and I'm, I'm failing. I'm yeah. failing publicly. And there was something also about the fact that he came through it that made me feel like, I'm not going to be consigned to like the dustbin of history. Yeah. Um, and I think ultimately what I would say about ratings is that I've used this metaphor before, but I think that I think when you get a TV show, you think that you're getting the keys to a sports car mm -hmm. and you're just going to go and drive where you want. Mm -hmm. And what you realize is that you just got a sailboat. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. You can't just, it has no power under it, its own. Yeah. It only goes somewhere because the wind and the wind is audience attention. Yeah. And if you can't find where the audience attention is blowing and then channel the audience attention and tack around the audience attention to move the show and the boat where you want it to go, you can't be successful. Mm -hmm. Now, there are some people who don't care where the boat goes. Yeah. <laughs> and so one thing to do is just chase audience attention. Yeah. And there are ways to do that that are successful. Um, in my case, I really care where the boat goes. 
Yeah. But I can't make it go there by myself. And I sure as hell cannot steer into the wind. I can't mm -hmm. say, hey, America, here's a thing you're not paying any attention to. Yeah. And I'm going to make you pay attention. Yep. I could pick my spots and sometimes do that. Yeah. And you do. I've, I've seen yeah. it before. Yeah. 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 And I, I'm now, again, I'm a, I've, I've, I'm a sufficiently... I'm a sufficiently accomplished, you know, sailor now yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that I can do that. But that was all very difficult learning. And, you know, we spent the first two or three years where the, the broader context was that interest in political news had fallen off a cliff. But Barack Obama won a second term. Mm -hmm. That story was kind of over. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. it wasn't over. He was still the president, but it was like. I know what you mean. The, the, a, certain, a certain narrative tension had left the story. Yeah. Yeah. And in the absence of that narrative tension, you, what you saw across all political media was, you know, stuff just fell off the table. Yeah. And so that was the context we were in and it was brutal. And we were, you know, we were not rating very well. We, I was constantly having stories written about how I was going to get canceled. And yeah, yeah. And they were trying, they were talking to this person or that person. It's just totally messing my head. It's yeah. absolutely brutal. Um, and are, are there executives throwing all kinds of unhelpful suggestions at you? Of course. Yes, of course. yes, yes, yes. Of course, you're getting noted to death. Yeah. And it's not even like, it's like you want them to, you know, go away, but it's also like, it's not really working. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and it was, it was, I'm still, I'm still genuinely like psychically star scarred from that period. Yeah. yeah. Like for real. It, it yeah. really, um, but, we came through it. We sort of, I think, I honestly think, to be honest, the only reason I survived that period, two reasons. One is we kind of became a to-do list item that never got crossed off. Yeah. You know, that those things that are your to-do yeah, list yeah. that like you look up, and you're like, holy shit, that's been there five years. Like, yeah, it's like there was always some post-it somewhere like replace Chris Hayes at yeah. PM. I know. Just, I, I, yeah, I've been there. Never, it never quite got, yeah, it never got executed. And then, I think the other thing, honestly, was that we were always, I think, myself and our staff, my executive producer, Dennis Horgan, who de deserves a huge amount of credit, I think, for our survival, were everyone knew how hard we were working, mm -hmm. how much we wanted it to work, and how gen generally, like, decent we were as colleagues to work with. Like, yeah. People did not have it out for us. Right. They weren't like, oh, that asshole. Right, you know? right. I mean, some people had it out for us because they wanted to take over the slot. Yes. And that's just normal. That's just, you know. Normal Machiavellian bullshit. Yeah, that's just like, yeah. yeah, that's life. You know, that's just, that's what it is. But I think the fact that it was, it was clear to everyone that we were, that no one was working harder at it or trying to figure yeah. it out more than we were. Yeah. That combined with time. And then honestly, the context just changed, you know? And then, and then all of a sudden the show became quite successful. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think a huge part of that was luck, a combination of luck, context. And I think I also, we talk about that, that learning curve was there was some, some level of performative comfort that I achieved. Yeah. That probably helped. Yeah. No, it mm. takes a while to learn how to be on TV. You know, yes. Lorne Lorne Michaels, who whatever you want to say about him, is an amazing font of aphorisms. And one of his is uh the longer you're on TV, the longer you're on TV. Absolutely. And it is true. true. It's just it, you get on there true. and nobody goes, it's like you say, they don't go to the trouble of taking you off because well, he's already there and then you know they're doing all right, and you know, okay, whatever, leave him there. Um, and also and that, because you get a, you get better and people get, you know, TV, you know, TV functions, TV, particularly TV personality relationships, mm -hmm. they're, they're operating. I mean, I have a whole riff on this that I'll spare you, but like the short version is that <laughs> we evolved as hunter gatherers on the Savannah in which we produced extremely powerful facial recognition Mm -hmm. as a means of telling who our kin are. <laughs> yes, yes, not and, killing each other. And, and that basically like that, like the one of the oldest 
pieces of our brain circuitry is functioning yeah, when yeah. we see a person, particularly night in, night out. It's like, oh, that's kin. Like yeah, they'll, yeah. We'll, they'll share food with me. I'll share food right. with them, you know? Yeah, yeah. And that's a, that's a powerful thing. That's a tough yeah. thing to break. Yeah. Yeah. Biological imprinting. Yes. Is the the exactly. secret to that's TV we success. Well, I got to get you out of here because you got to, you got a show to do. So that just to kind of wrap up, you know, this is, and this podcast, we like to kind of have people say like, you know, you started out, you know, your life is, is a very successful, interesting life of adjusted expectations. <laughs> and, and I wonder like, what has that taught you? And I mean, and what, it, what from that arc do you, like, do you feel like sharing when, because mm. people always ask when you're, when you're doing good, they say, how, how do you do it? You know, <laughs> they always want advice. So. I mean, honestly, the, the, the honest answer is that like an enormous amount of privilege and luck. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, that's just the, that's the, that's the truth. Yeah. I, yeah. It, um, I think the other two things I would say are, I think that it has borne me pretty intense rewards to be a person who is generally a, an affable and polite, kind person. Yeah. Um, it's not to say I don't get angry. I don't, you know, whatever. Yeah. But I think generally like on the, how is he an asshole spectrum? Um, I'm, I'm not really. Yeah, um, yeah. And I think that's really, cause there's a lot of people who are. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> like, Absolutely. And, and, and also and, that's the way, that's the way the wind blows when you're on yeah. TV and, and you yeah, get surrounded yeah. by people that want to make things happen for you. If you don't work against it, you will become a dick. Yeah. Yes. No. Oh my God. It's like, yeah. Television success is like a someone running an experiment to see if they could turn you into a psychopath. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Here, let's just like have a lots of strangers have opinions about you yes. and, make, and make you simultaneously feel like <laughs> omnipotent and desperately needy. And like, garbage. What, 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 yeah. What, yeah. What if we combine like, unceasing neediness with a with enormous ego and just with, just pump them into your brain <laughs> like what will happen and the answer is yeah, like yeah. you become a psychopath so yeah you become a lunatic yeah so i think that i think that not being a psycho and then the last thing i would say is that i will say this about i think like you know to quote shakespeare <laughs> like to thine own self be true yeah i didn't i never it was hard at times and I felt really pulled at times, but I never gave up on who I am. I, yeah. I you know, I, I am who I am. I believe in what I believe in. I say what I say. I, I think I've gotten better at like, you know, certain broadcasting technique things, but mm -hmm. I never, I never was like, well, whatever, what do you want me to be? Yeah. And I'm so happy that I didn't because it felt tempting to do that at times. Yeah. And I don't, I've never, I've never felt that people do that. I mean, it's a different, it's a different side of television, but I've never felt that people that I've never encountered a person that did that, who said, let me be who you want me to be ever ends up. That's exactly happy. right. Yes. They always end up in absolute fucking Agony. misery. Absolute misery. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And there are some people who get successful that way. It's not that yes. they, like that, that is a way that that's, it, that's it, what I it mean. It can work. Yeah. Like, it can absolutely work. Absolutely. But it takes a psychic toll for sure. Yeah. yeah. But you basically have just give, given yourself yeah. to, I, I call it the commodification of the self. Yeah. Like you take the deepest part of you and yeah. whether you know, whether you know it or not, you're giving it to somebody to be printed on t-shirts. Yep. And that fucks you up, you yep. know? So don't do that, kids. Don't do that, kids. Um, all right. Well, Chris, thank you so much. For, this was a uh, really, really incredible conversation. Thank you oh, for having me. Oh, thank you. Me. Sure. I, I'm, I was happy to, and I was excited uh, that you said yes. So um, go give him hell tonight. I will. All right. Bye. Thanks, Chris. And thank all of you for listening to the, the this episode of The Three Questions, and we'll be back next week. The Three Questions with Andy Richter is a Team Coco and Earwolf production. It is produced by Lane Gerbig, engineered by Marina Pice, and talent produced by Galitza Hayek. 
The associate producer is Jen Samples, supervising producer Aaron Blayert, and executive producers Adam Sachs and Jeff Ross at Team Coco, and Colin Anderson and Cody Fisher at Earwolf. Make sure to rate and review the three questions with Andy Richter on Apple Podcasts. Can't you tell my love's a growing? This has been a Team Coco production in association with Earwolf. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com.